I wasn't actually scheduled to preach today. Uh, Lloyd was supposed to preach, but unfortunately he's sick. I'm not going to say with what, but five days hadn't since passed, so he couldn't preach today. Um, with little notice, I didn't have much time to prepare a sermon. And so uh, fortunately, the passage we just read from Luke, I've preached before from the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark today instead of Luke, because as I've heard from my mother-in-law many times, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Uh, and so this same event is recorded in Luke and Mark, this, this healing of a boy possessed with a demon. And it was just read to us from Luke and from Mark. And you likely noticed that there are some differences. And each author, they have their reasons known only to them about why they include or don't include certain details. But the biggest difference between Luke and Mark's account of this event is this exchange between Jesus and the demon-possessed boy's father. And I'm really grateful that Mark included this exchange because we receive these words. I do believe, help me overcome my belief. I believe, help my unbelief. Mark shows us that faith, it's not as narrow as it's sometimes depicted. You know, faith isn't faith or believing despite the evidence or blind faith that uh, ignores serious questions or belief that crumbles if examined or even belief that is free from doubt. You know, the faith we encounter today in this passage, it is way too messy to be that simple. It's there and it's not there at the same time in a single person. So what I want to do is walk through this passage in, in Mark together, chapter 9, and we'll do that by beginning in verse 14. We got this figured out yet? Almost? Still feedbacking? All right. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. When they came to each other, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. I asked the disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Uh, I'm going to say you drive out the echo by making sure all the other mics are muted really quick. Have you ever said something that accidentally triggered a massive argument? Uh, you realize that the argument isn't really about what you said. It's actually about something else altogether. You know, what you said touched on a deeper issue. Uh, a similar tension's at play in our passage today. At first glance, if you just read this passage and you had to say, what is this passage about? You would say, this is an exorcism story. And yes, it is, but it's actually about a deeper issue. It's actually about the faith needed to follow Jesus. And so Jesus, John, James, and Peter, they've just come back down from the mountaintop where the transfiguration took place. And we looked at that last week. Up on that mountain, Jesus revealed his glory and his divinity to his core disciples. But here's the thing. Not only did John, James, and Peter fail to understand what took place on that mountain, when they rejoin the rest of the disciples, they're stepping in right into the, 
a hot mess of an argument. You know, on top of the mountain, they see the glory of God, but back on the ground, things are a mess. And so a father, he had brought his son to the disciples to cast out a demon, and it didn't go well. You know, the disciples, they couldn't do it. They had no power, and so now there's this public conflict going on. And it's an odd scene to most of us anyways. I mean, demons, miracles, this isn't how many of us are accustomed to seeing the world. Yet even if we were going to hit pause and adopt the worldview of the scriptures for a moment and said, okay, I'll enter into the story, demons, miracles, and everything, there's still a deeper issue going on. We're afraid of disappointment. Now, if, we're, if we permit that miracles can happen, it opens us up to wondering why they don't happen when we need them most or why they didn't happen for someone we love when they needed it most. After all, what about the father in this passage? Here's a man who's likely weighed down with grief from years and years of caring for a tormented son. And he's willing to open himself up to the possibility of a miracle. You know, and this is a stretch for him. Surely his family, they've tried everything there is to try, but the movement of Jesus has been growing. And now the father hears that some of his disciples are coming to his town. And maybe what Jesus has done for others could be done for his son. And so he comes to his disciples. He asks them to heal his boy, and they can do nothing for him. The father says to Jesus in verse 18, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. More literally, it's they had no power. They had no power. And what a disappointment. You know, this brings us closer to the concern and our resistance to miracles. If in faith you're willing to say that miracles happen, if you say there's a God, you have to permit that miracles could happen. And if you permit this possibility and you, you give Christianity a shot, what if it only leads to this experience here? What if you believe and you come to Jesus and you're left with your hands open and the miracle doesn't happen? What if it doesn't have any power? You see, deep down, we're afraid of being let down or disillusioned or fooled or, or disappointed. And so what's the point of signing up for a faith that might have no power to help us? Here's the thing. Even if you decide not to put your faith in God or in the miraculous, it doesn't mean that you're neutral. You know, you place your faith in something, and whatever it is, you won't uh, escape the risk of disappointment. And you won't escape the the reality that you are, in fact, powerless. You know, if your kid gets sick or if your parents start ailing or if your company downsizes, if there's a natural disaster, we're, we're powerless. And we deal with that experience of powerlessness by placing our faith in something. You know, if this father were alive today, like many of the, us, his faith would be in medicine and doctors. That's a good place to put your faith. But what about those of us who have a rare disease or an illness that evades diagnosis, what happens? You're referred from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, treatment to treatment, until what? Until someone gives you a catch-all phrase like irritable bowel syndrome or, or something that says, we don't know what's wrong with you, but it's something in this, in this range. You see, at best bet, your faith is in a system that helps most people and in good ways, but disappoints others. And it could even disappoint you. But there are times where 
you, you, you can put your place in other places, right? Instead of just medicine, you, maybe you put your faith in humanity's goodness. Uh, several years ago, I was at a citywide prayer breakfast, and a council member of the city of Vancouver was asked to share. And her opening remarks were so remarkable, I wrote them down. Here's what she said. I do not have faith in God, good opener at a prayer breakfast, but that doesn't mean I don't have faith. I'm an atheist, but I have faith in humanity, faith in the goodness in each of us. But you see, this sort of faith only works if we're selectively observing people, only if we close our eyes to what actually takes place on earth and throughout the world. You know, if we put our faith in humanity's goodness, we will at some point be disappointed. And while the human spirit can rally to overcome, and while the human spirit can come together and do beautiful things, even without faith in God, we're still powerless to so many things as well. And so most of us, we place our faith not then in humanity's goodness or in things outside of us. We actually put our faith in ourselves. If we're not going to put faith in God, we'll put our faith in ourselves. And this works until it doesn't. And one day we let ourselves down. I mean, think about the disciples in this passage. What happened that they had no power? I mean, after all, they had been sent out by Jesus before. They've cast out demons before. What happened? Jesus is going to say to them, you didn't pray. They had started to believe their own hype, and slowly their faith shifted from being in Christ to being a disciple. Their faith was in themselves. And what happens? They have no power. They let themselves down. See, everybody has faith in something. That's my point. And whatever our faith is in, there's always going to be a risk of disappointment, an experience of powerlessness. And so if we take a risk by placing our faith in God, that's just an inherent risk. You might be disappointed. You might still confront your powerlessness. That's the human experience. So what does Jesus then have to say about all of this? Like this, this, this mess that his disciples have created. Jesus steps into this mess where the faith of his disciples is disappointed and the disciples' faith in themselves is disappointed and powerlessness is wreaking havoc. You know, what does Jesus have to say? Look at verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. First off, this breaks the caricature that Jesus is just always kind of a chill, loving, inclusive dude every moment. This is the authentic words of Jesus right here. They're pretty heavy, aren't they? He He's not just grieved by the situation he walks into. He says, I'm grieved with the entire generation. This really became about something bigger for him. You know, why such a wide scope of grief? You know, when it comes to the people of God, Jesus is the son of God. This is not a new issue for him. This is a very, very old issue that he's facing yet again. You know, when Jesus calls the generation unbelieving or faithless, he has the exodus in mind, but not the beautiful part of the story. Not the part of the story where God faithfully and powerfully delivers people out of slavery in Egypt. He's thinking about the people's unbelieving or faithless response to God's saving power. You see, almost immediately, the very people God had just delivered out of Egypt and brought into the wilderness, the people who had saw all of the miraculous works, 
They begin to question and doubt the promises of God and his ability to follow through, and so they become afraid. You see, the reality of being with God in the wilderness didn't meet their expectations. So rather than recalibrate their expectations and examine their own hearts, they began to complain and grumble. They make accusations. God has brought us solely out into this wilderness to die. And so the first committee in the Bible is formed, the Back to Egypt Committee. And uh, it gives a bit of cards about my thoughts about committees. But they say slavery in Egypt was better than supposed freedom with God. And so, what did God call that generation? Faithless. Unbelieving. You know, their actions showed what they really believed. God isn't trustworthy. God isn't good. God isn't able to deliver on his promises. So back to Mark. When Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? It's because as the Son of God, this is not his first encounter with our unbelief. He's had to endure the faithlessness of a generation and generation upon generations. Now, I know you're all bright people, and I've I've said everybody has faith in something, but here Jesus is saying we can also be faithless. So how do we reconcile, reconcile those two thoughts? See, just because God calls the people in the wilderness faithless, it doesn't mean there's now this, like, empty space, this vacuum where faith used to reside. They still believed in God. And their faith in themselves remain intact. You know, they think they know what's best and true. Let's get back to Egypt. But instead, they put their faith back in the gods of Egypt. They put their faith back in the social structures of Egypt. They moved their faith from Yahweh, who has delivered them into the wilderness, and they put their faith back in their old existence. And so where you place your faith determines whether you will act in faithfulness or faithlessness toward God. If you believe God isn't there, if God isn't good and trustworthy, that's still faith. You can't prove these things, but in faith you declare these things, and then that influences how you live out your faith. You see, faith, from that vantage point, then God says that's actually faithless. Because faith is fundamentally a direction, a partner, an attachment, a relationship. Your faith in God will either move you towards faithfulness or your faith in something else will move you towards faithlessness toward God. One way we can think about this is uh, a faithless spouse. You know, a spouse should be acting one way with love and fidelity and faithfulness, but then they act in the opposite. Uh, They act in a way that compromises and undermines the entire relationship by giving their affections and their body to another. And so their faithfulness to their spouse has changed directions, and it's now aimed toward a new romance or whatever. But now that they're faithless to their spouse, it doesn't mean that they stopped believing they had a spouse. Their reason for their faithfulness faithlessness wasn't, oh, I never had a spouse to begin with. It's usually something like, I'm not satisfied, or the spark is gone, or monogamy isn't really possible, or I just don't like this person anymore, or our conflict is irreconcilable. Whatever the reason may be, it's led them to become faithless toward their spouse. But do you see, there's still faith happening towards something. And in this case, it's the belief that pursuing their desires will lead to satisfaction, even if it costs them their marriage. See, yet despite humanity's repeating pattern of faithlessness, despite our own faithlessness, despite the grief that it strikes into the heart of God that's evident in Christ here, God does not withhold his compassion and mercy. 
Yes, Jesus is grieved by human faithlessness, and yet what does he do? Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So from childhood, this boy's been tormented. He's been burned. He's almost been drowned. And this tormenting spirit has tried to destroy him. And the father is desperate. And he's come to the disciples. And they have no power. And then Jesus arrives. And then with some reluctance, I'm sure, the father asks, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. And then Jesus responds, if? I mean, at a gut level, don't you have a lot of empathy for this father? Like, why is Jesus being a stickler with him at this point? The father has faced enough disappointment. He's been let down again and again. He's endured this pain, and yet despite it all, he came to Jesus' disciples, and they had no power. And even after that experience, he's still willing to ask Jesus to help him out, to take that step and be disappointed and try again. I mean, wow, that's faith, isn't it? But here's what we need to understand. Jesus is compassionate. We're going to see that. That's not the issue here. The issue is faith. All things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, if you understood who it is that you're approaching, if you understood who Jesus is, you would put your faith in him. There would be no if. You would know that as the son of God, he's able to do what you're asking. And so Jesus turns the table. The issue isn't with him and his ability. The issue is faith. What does this man believe about Jesus? But this pushback from Jesus actually draws out something really beautiful. The man cries out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Can you imagine if Jesus didn't push back, we wouldn't have this prayer that we love? I believe. Help my unbelief. And just pushing a little bit, Jesus actually draws out something profoundly beautiful. What a relief this declaration is. I mean, here is the crux of faith, sincere faith, honest faith. I believe. I also don't believe. So help me believe and overcome this unbelief. The Father's faith is genuine, not when he has enough of it, not when he risks everything he has. He's already done that. It's genuine when he just brings it all to Jesus and names it for what it is. Sincere faith, it cries out. It's helplessness that matters before God, not our holiness. Helplessness, not our holiness. If faith required total holiness, we would all be in real trouble. I mean, thankfully, Jesus doesn't respond to this man. Don't you know who I'm talking to? Let me tell you what just happened up on that mountain. I am the glory of God. So go home, clean up your act, get your heart straight, learn more, get your facts right about who I am, live a more holy life, do more of the right things, and then and only then come back to me. And if you're more holy and you have more faith, then I'll help you. But that's how religion operates. 
Religion says do the right things and then you'll reach your true self or enlightenment or transcendence or acceptance or nirvana. Even forms of Christianity work this way. Believe enough and you'll be healed. If you're not healed, it's because you don't believe enough. Be holy enough, otherwise God will never accept you. Clean up your act or God will not be with you. But this is not the way of Jesus, and this is not what Jesus is asking of us. Think about it with me. If the man, say, in this holiness paradigm, did everything Jesus said, he went home, learned everything he could about the Torah and how Jesus is the Messiah, got all his facts right about Jesus, he started living a more holy life, cleaning up his act, becoming more perfect, and he came back to Jesus and he said, I've done my part, now you owe me. That's not faith, that's entitlement. Faith is a reaction to our understanding of our own helplessness. It's, a, it's aware of how small and inadequate we are. It's aware of our imperfection. It's aware of our fragility. It's aware that we're at best conflicted, but nevertheless, we come to God, we cry out. Faith means you can have your doubts. You can be struggling to fully understand. You can be uncertain either, but you can, you can bring all of that to God. And the reality is, in faith, you'll likely experience all of those things at some point in your pursuit of God. But nevertheless, faith cries out. Faith cries out, not trusting in the quality of our faith, but trusting in the quality of the one we're calling out to. Because faith is in Jesus, not ourselves. And that's why it's good news. Our faith is in his faithfulness and not our own. So faith is believing in Jesus, trusting in his Faithfulness, And when we direct our faith toward Christ, what does Jesus say? What's impossible for humanity is possible for me. In other words, I will not disappoint. I will not disappoint. Our faith is only as good as what we put it in. And our faith in Jesus will deliver, not because we have enough faith, but because Jesus is faithful. Father cries out, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He does what no one else could do. He heals the man's son. He heals him. All these years of torment and suffering gone in an instant. But I want to be clear, like faith in Jesus doesn't remove all of the risk. Though there's still some difficulty. First, faith in Jesus is not without risk because faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you get everything you want or need the way you want or how you want it. If you need healing, even today, you can cry out to Jesus and he still heals. But not all of the time, does he? If you need healing, you cry out. We believe he's able to heal, but sometimes we're not healed. Does that mean there's something wrong with our faith or the one our faith is in? No. It just means that God sometimes uses the turmoil and the struggle and the difficulties, even our suffering, to form and shape us, not as a punishment but a way of working his grace out in our lives. You see, faith in Jesus comes with knowing that the answer to our suffering or sickness will ultimately be yes. He will heal us in an instant like this boy when we arrive on eternity's shore. Some of us might experience that healing now. All of us will experience that healing later. He will heal injustices. He will make things right. He will bind up our wounds and so our faith isn't in our circumstances getting better and better along the way. Our faith is in the one who has paved the way into a new heaven and earth where all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so ultimately, friends, ultimately our faith will not disappoint. 
And that is a declaration of faith. And even as we're waiting for that yes, even as it hurts hearing the no or the not yet, the yes is God. And second, faith is not without risk because you're going to be disappointed by other people. I mean, think about the disciples in this passage. This man comes like, hey, you're representatives of Jesus, totally let down by the representatives of Jesus. Anybody's experience sound like the modern church at all, like just a little bit? It's a risk of faith. If you put your faith in Christ, you're then a part of the church. The disciples of Jesus, who often fall short of who Jesus is. And we can start to wonder, like, why am I exposing myself to this risk? Why am I exposing myself to these people who, who seem to fall short of who Jesus is all the time? And we can start to feel disappointed. And here's the thing, though. Genuine faith doesn't judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. And genuine faith doesn't give up on Jesus' followers based off of their weakness. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to defend the shortcomings of the church. Whenever the church falls short, all we can do is name it, own it, and ask for the grace to, to repent and try again. When leaders fall short, and we do, I've fallen short, what do we do? I name it. I ask for forgiveness. I learn. I try again. That's what we do as the people of God. That's what we do, but it's a risk, isn't it? Faith can disappoint because followers of Jesus can disappoint us. But where we are unable, this passage reminds us, Christ is able, and we need this church, this messy group of people, to work out our faith together as we journey toward Jesus. But our passage is not over yet. Jesus heals the boy, and then Mark concludes with verses 28 through 29. After Jesus had gone indoors, I love that little note. I'm not going to ask this in front of everybody. We're going to wait till this whole mess dies down. So once Jesus is indoors, his disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we drive out the demon? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So in other words, what's wrong, Jesus? Like we've cast out demons before. Why not this one? And then he says, this kind. And our minds are inclined to hear like, okay, well, this was like a super demon versus like the other like low-level demons. But scholars generally agree that like this means demons as a whole and not just a specific type of demon. I, I, I did a deep dive on that back in 2017 when I first preached the sermon, not recently. But I think it stands. And uh, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. You didn't pray. You didn't pray. You tried to cast out the demon in your own authority, in your own strength. You believed your own hype as disciples, and you didn't pray. What did you think was going to happen? You didn't pray. Let that sink in. The implication then is, disciples, like if you didn't pray, it's because your faith wasn't in me. Like if you had faith in me, you would pray to the Father. If you had faith in me, you wouldn't bank on your own power, but in mine. So you didn't pray because you're still working out your faith. And honestly, like, we're not much better, are we? How's your prayer life? It's the truest evidence of our faith. Is it lacking? Is it a struggle? Is it a priority? Is it a joy? Is it a burden? Do you feel like sometimes you're speaking to the air? Because sometimes it 
feel like it's useless to even bring it to God? Is it sometimes there, sometimes non-existent? I mean, the, the truth for all of us is that our prayer life is sometimes free and flexible, and it's this exciting part of our lives, and, and sometimes it's down, and, and sometimes we pray poorly and badly, and sometimes we pray well, and sometimes it feels like this slogging discipline, and other times it's like spontaneous joy, and sometimes, like the disciples, when it matters most, we just don't pray. And so what does that say about our faith? No wonder faith cries out, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. And so belief and unbelief, they can exist simultaneously in us. And if you want to see that in yourself, look at your prayer life. You can be both faithful and faithless. And so it leaves me wondering, and I'm sure you wonder, like how can God work with such a faithless people? I mean, how can God work with me? Here's the truth, friends. Like God either works with faithless people or nobody at all. There's not one nook on this earth where people have it all together. And the reason that God can bear with faithless generation after generation is this. God has compassion. God has compassion for us. You know, we may be faithless and disappoint him, but he will not disappoint us. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, in Luke and in Mark, after this experience, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says now for the second time to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus is faithful for us and his faithfulness will lead all the way to a cross because he's compassion for us. And so we can be assured that he will fulfill every promise for us, And it doesn't depend on our faith and understanding because Jesus didn't offer his life on the cross for people who understood what he was doing. He did it for people who needed what he was doing. And Jesus didn't die when we were full of faith, but when we were faithless. And so when the faithfulness of Christ grips you, even when you're unfaithful, when you just turn to him with the smallest amount of belief, you find there's no condemnation. There's no shame for our failure or shortcoming. It's this satisfying, peaceful contentment. It's a joy that multiplies happiness because we don't have to bank on anything we can do because everything has been done for us by Christ. The former Archbishop Michael Ramsey wrote this. Prayer is daring to be your own self as you reach toward God. Prayer is daring to be your own self as you reach toward God. Isn't that what the Father's doing in our passage? He's totally honest about himself before Jesus. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that is the good news, is that our faith in Christ is in the one who is faithful even when we're faithless. Even a prayer that says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is here. He's knocking on the door. Often we don't let him in. He's here. And I think for a lot of us following Jesus in Vancouver, we want to worship him with our hearts and our minds. But the door that we keep closed is actually living out our faith day by day. Showing mercy, pursuing justice, doing the things 
that God asks us to do, the good works that he sets before us. Will you open that door to Jesus? He's not trying to force his way into your life. He's knocking. He wants to be invited in. He wants to reside in your life. He wants to walk with you in every moment. But if he walks with you, he doesn't just want a show. He doesn't just want you to raise your hands when you worship, although that would be all right. Like he wants you to pursue justice, to show mercy, to live a life of generosity, to walk in his ways for the common good of others, proclaiming his kingdom. Will you open that door to him? Will you recognize that in that reality, for us in Vancouver today, we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are prone to think the right things, believe the right things, talk about you, worship you, go to groups, but then there's this disconnect between the rest of my life and my faith. Will you open that door to him so that we're not just hearers of the word, but doers also? I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This simple prayer can bring us to Christ who has the power to make all things possible like healing, forgiveness, redemption, new life, reconciliation, mercy, and justice. Yes, even a new heaven and earth where one day every tear will be wiped away. Let's pray.